Well, please turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we'll be reading together verses uh, 13 through 15. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Now, this passage comes within the, the, the narrative of the burning bush. God reveals himself to Moses in, in a burning bush and calls Moses to be his instrument, his instrument for redeeming Israel out of Egypt. And in this scene, in this narrative, God reveals his covenant name to Moses, the name Yahweh. And he also says that he is the great I am. I am who I am, or you could say, I will be who I will be. And so these verses come within this scene. So Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, please also look with me in your, uh, uh, your bulletin at the confessional reading element. This morning we'll be reciting together once again, Belgic Confession, Article 1. Belgic Confession, Article 1. Now, as we read this confession, I'd like you to think about a very fundamental question. Is God, in terms of his being, is he simple or is he complex? Is God simple or is he complex? Well, Christian, what do you believe? We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Well, let us pray and ask that the Lord would bless our consideration this morning. Merciful Father, we thank you that you indeed have not remained hidden, but you have revealed yourself to us in in your manifold works, not only your works of creation and providence, but most supremely in your written word, a word that has been preserved through many, many centuries and generations to our present day. And we thank you that we have the privilege in this moment to consider how you speak about yourself, how you reveal yourself to us. And we pray that as we consider these things, we, re- we would remember that we are mere creatures who are, who are just um, scratching the surface of who you are in your incomprehensible being. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, boys and girls, what are we to do with our hearts 
and with our mouths, based on that first line of the Belgic Confession. What are we to do with our hearts and what are we to do with our mouths? Ezekiel? With our... Yes, good, good. We are to believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths. That's exactly how the Belgic Confession begins. We believe in our hearts, our hearts believe, and our, 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 our mouths confess. Now today I'd like us to consider the rest of this article. And to do so, we will be considering this fundamental question, who is God? Who is God? This is arguably the most fundamental and important question that we as creatures can ask. Who is God? Now, someone once said that God created a man in his image, and man has ever since been returning the favor. We need to be very careful that we do not seek to project upon God our own desires, preferences, cultural convictions, or individual individuality. It's very easy for us to create a God after our own image and our own likeness. Now, as we consider this question, who is God, as we consider some possible answers to this question, this question may strike us as a bit speculative, philosophical, or even dry as we think about the being and and character of God. And so what is the purpose? What is the purpose of this question? Who is God? Well, the purpose of this question is doxology. All applications of scripture fall under one of two headings, discipleship or doxology. Discipleship in the sense of right living or doxology in the sense of praise and worship. Now, most of the time, when we think about application, we think immediately of discipleship. What must I do? However, oftentimes, Scripture just calls us to stand in awe of who God is. And so as we consider this article, as we consider who God is, our goal is to be the goal of Paul in Romans eleven thirty three, 33, as, as he Uh, considers the, the, the character of God. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And one pastor from the 19th century said that nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And so we are going to consider who God is, and in response, my hope is that we stand in awe of who he is. We stand in awe of our great God and creator. Another one of my goals as we consider this article is that we would walk away thinking, I can't quite wrap my mind around what, uh, what was just said. You know, when we begin to think, when we begin to speak about God, we very quickly realize that our words and our thoughts bump up against a ceiling that we cannot transcend. And so as we consider who God is, words will only, our words will only go so far. And we will never fully be able to master who God is. So we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being. What a great way to begin a confession of faith. And the Belgic then goes on to list 10 more attributes of God. 
Now, rather than going through each one of these attributes in tandem, I would like to focus our attention on one attribute, the simplicity of God. Article 1 says that God is a simple, a simple being. This one attribute helps us make sense of the rest of the attributes of God, and the rest of the attributes of God help form a definition for this one single attribute. So today we're going to focus our attention upon the simplicity of God. God is a simple being. Now, as I asked you before, is God simple or complex? Now, before reading this article, some of you may have been tempted to think of God as complex. So why does the the Belgic Confession refer to God as a simple being? This might strike us as a bit odd. God is a simple being. Does this mean that God is a simpleton or that he's simple-minded? Does this mean that God is easy to master and understand, like 2 plus 2 equals 4 is an easy math problem to solve? Are we saying that God is unadorned or not beautiful as a simply dressed person? Well, no, not at all. And so at this point, it's important to remember that words have a semantic range, meaning ordinarily words have multiple definitions. And so when the Belgic Confession is using the word simple, it's using the word in the sense of something not being complex or composite, something not being made up of many different parts or aspects, something that's not uh, divided or divisible. Uh, One example one author gives is if you take an article of clothing or a jacket, let's say you have a jacket that's made of wool. That jacket is simple in terms of its fabric, but if you have another article of clothing that's made up of multiple fibers, that article of clothing is complex in its fabric. And so the Belgian Confession is using the word simple in the sense of God not being a composite, made up of many different parts, many different attributes. God is simple. Now, I'd like to now uh, focus our attention on three descriptions, or, or you could say three definitions of what God's simplicity is. God is simple. And the three ways in which the Belgian Confession continues to, to unfold this attribute of God is by describing God as single, God as spiritual, and God as being all of his attributes all at the same time. So first, we, we read in, in Belgian Confession, Article 1, that God is single. This means that God is not three gods. God is one God. When it comes to God's essence or substance, God is fundamentally one God, but yet he is three in person. And we see this, this, this doctrine, this attribute revealed in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, when Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your hearts and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the first creed among God's covenant people. Uh, This this creed was referred to as the Shema because the, the word here in Hebrew is Shema. 
This was the creed that Israel recited every week in their synagogue worship. In fact, the early church in the first century recited this creed every Lord's Day in their corporate worship. And we know this based on James 2.19 when James says that you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James is referring to how the early Christians would gather and confess this creed that God is one, but yet they were not displaying the fruits of true faith. And so what does it mean that God is simple? Well, first of all, it means that he's single. God in his essence is not many, but he is one. God is one God. And so this is the the first aspect of what it means that God is a simple God. He's a single God. Well, second, we see that God is spiritual. God is spiritual. Now, what does this mean? Well, this means that God does not have a body and a soul. This means that God is not the sum total of many different parts that then make up a being called God. God is a spiritual being. We, on the other hand, have a body and a soul, and our bodies and souls can be even further subdivided. Our souls can think, can will, can emote, can desire, and our bodies are made up of thousands of different different aspects and, and parts and pieces. Not so with God. God is simple and spiritual. He doesn't have a body and a soul. Uh, We see this in John chapter 4, verse 24, when Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 17, Paul says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Or our call to worship earlier, when Paul says, that God is someone whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, we might be thinking to ourselves, what about those passages in Scripture that speak about God as having human parts? God having a, a right hand, or, or God having, having tear ducts, or, a nostril, or nostrils, or hands, or arms, or legs. What do we do with this anthropomorphic speech that we see largely in the Old Testament? Now, if God revealed himself as he is in himself, we would have no chance at understanding anything about him. This is in part because of the vast, vast distinction between the creator and the creature. And so God, knowing our finitude, condescends to our weakness, accommodates his revelation to fit our limited capacity. This is why that we shouldn't take God's revelation of himself and his word in an overly literal way. God is speaking metaphors or analogies to us. John Calvin referred to this as God's baby talk. He lisps to us as finite creatures. Imagine a a four-year-old child. Your four-year-old child asks you what you did at work today. Now, I imagine you wouldn't respond to this four-year-old by talking to him or her the way you talk to your coworker at work as you think through a particular issue or project. If you did this, that four-year-old wouldn't understand anything that you're saying. So what do you do? You accommodate 
your speech. You condescend to the limited cognitive capacity of that child so that they can at least know something of what you did that day. And this is what God does for us in his word. And this is why God oftentimes speaks of himself in an anthropomorphic way. He does this not so that we might think of him as a really big human being, but so that we can have some knowledge, some knowledge of who he is. And so God is spiritual. God is spiritual. And this serves as a further leg to the stool of his simplicity. God does not have a body and and a soul. He's not made up of parts. God is a simple and spiritual being. Now, now last of all, we see that God's simplicity means that God is all of his attributes all at the same time. Now, think about that for a moment. God is all of his attributes all at the same time. This means that God is not the sum total of all of his attributes. Meaning you you take all of God's attributes, you add them together, and you get a being called God. God is all of his attributes all at the same time. We shouldn't think of God as a 12-piece apple pie. He's 10% love, 10% justice, 10% truth, 10% wisdom. And when you put together all these pieces of God's pie, you have God. No, God is all of his attributes all at the same time. Now, where do we see this in Scripture? Well, Scripture doesn't merely say that God possesses his attributes. Rather, Scripture says that God is his attributes. Scripture says that God is the truth and the life. God is love and wisdom. He doesn't merely possess these attributes, but he is these attributes. So much so that one author states that this doctrine of divine simplicity teaches that all that is in God is God. All that is in God is God. You know, we as humans possess rationality, but One can still be a human without rationality. Otherwise, we would not be able to affirm uh, babies who are in the womb as legitimate persons. Otherwise, it would be difficult to, to affirm those at the end of life who are experiencing cognitive degeneration as human persons. But not so with God. God is everything he possesses. If God ceases to be his attributes, he ceases to be God. These attributes aren't things that he just merely possesses or decides to take up upon himself. He is his attributes. Furthermore, do we see God being multiple attributes at the same time in Scripture? Do we see God being multiple attributes at the same time in Scripture? We do get a glimpse into this, this, this dynamic at the cross. In Romans chapter 3, verse 26, Paul says that when Jesus went to the cross, God was both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, God was both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Meaning that on the cross, God displayed his justice by punishing Jesus on the cross, 
And at the same time, he displayed his mercy by not counting our sins against us and imputing to us the righteousness of Christ. Thus, at the same time, God was merciful and just. So God is all of his attributes all at the same time. Now, we as finite creatures, we need to, to focus on one at a time just because of our finitude, but we shouldn't then think of God as a 12-piece apple pie. He is all of his attributes all at the same time. Now, of what practical significance of this doctrine? This doctrine, no doubt, probably feels quite philosophical um, and a little bit in the weeds, but what practical significance is this doctrine? This is a doctrine that's been confessed throughout the entire history of the church, from the early church through the medieval church and into and through the Reformation. So of what practical significance is this doctrine? Why have our forefathers in the faith bothered with this seemingly abstract doctrine of God? Well, first, this doctrine provides rock-solid foundation for our trust in him. Our trust that he will not change. Our trust that he is who he is and he will be who he will be. In Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals himself to Moses and calls Moses to be his instrument in redeeming Israel out of Egypt, he reveals himself as a simple being. Notice that he says, I am who I am. God just is. God is not becoming. He's not molding and transforming and changing based on the, the needs and environment of, the, of us in this world. God just is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a simple, single, spiritual being. This is the type of God that is revealed in Exodus chapter 3. So let's take God's love, for instance. How can we have assurance that God's love will not run out for us? The doctrine of simplicity. Why? Because if God ceases to be loving, God ceases to be God. If God ceases to be loving, he ceases to be God. All that is in God is God. And therefore, it's this doctrine that serves as this bedrock foundation for our trust that he will and will continue to be a loving God. How can we have confidence that God will continue to be a just God? In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How can we have confidence that the sins that are committed in this moral universe will be met with God's just retribution? Whether it be at Calvary, if that person repents and believes, or on Judgment Day? The doctrine of simplicity. Because if God ceases to be just, he ceases to be God. That's how foundational his attributes are to his being. And therefore, this doctrine provides that sure basis for our trust that he will be who he will be, that he will not change. Now, the second area of practical significance is that based on God's simplicity, we cannot rank God's attributes on a scale of most important to least important. So based on this doctrine, we cannot rank God's attributes on a scale of most important to least important. 
Listen to what the church father Gregory of Nyssa once said. For all the divine attributes, whether named or conceived, are of like rank one with another. For all the divine attributes, whether named or conceived, are of like rank one with another. So if God is all of his attributes all at the same time, then that means that there is no hierarchy in, within the attributes of God. This is important because there are many Christian traditions and many Christians today that tend to elevate certain doctrines over other doctrines. You know, there uh, is such a thing as hyper-Calvinism. Not Calvinism, hyper-Calvinism, which tends to elevate God's sovereignty and justice over his love. Or you can think of Arminianism, which tends to elevate God's love and turn a blind eye to God's justice. Now, what's the issue with these various Christian traditions? The issue is with their doctrine of God. God is a simple being. And because God is a simple being, we cannot rank his attributes. All that is in God is God. Last of all, this doctrine assures us that God is the supreme being of the universe. This doctrine assures us that God is the supreme being of the universe. Now, if God were complex, meaning if he, was, if he were to be, or if he was composite, made up of many different parts, if he had a body and a soul, then that would imply that there is a composer architect who stands behind God who then put, all, put God together. Right? Imagine a car, right? A car's made up of thousands of different parts, and all those parts need to go to a car assembly plant to be put together so that you could have the final product of a car. And so, too, if God were complex, if he, if he was a composite being, that would imply that there is some other being beyond him who stands as his architect, his composer, who would put him together. However, we read in Isaiah 45, verse 5, God saying this of himself, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. There is no being more superior than God. There is no being more powerful than God. There is no other God. So congregation of Christ, we believe and confess that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God.